0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you, and uh, grateful that you're in our church today, Um, battling a little illness here this morning, just so you know. Don't want the first two rows to be a splash zone, but I make no promises. Um, Sitting there thinking that uh, four years ago, uh, we had our first service here at Well Street on Easter Sunday, 2019. that interesting and uh next sunday will just be our second easter here for our entire church family we were two campuses there for a couple years and then some little virus thing messed with everybody's life there for a little while kind of messed with us too so uh, whenever we get to easter time it was a brilliant idea by the pastor uh who we bought the place in february of of 2019 and he said we should have easter services here and the place was a mess and it was a disaster and we worked our tails off and everybody hated me and uh, they 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 had a right to hate me i hated myself after that uh, that idea but we pulled it off a bunch of great stories there where we dismantled the fire alarm system by accident and had to have uh, the fort wayne fire department on site every time we had church but uh, here we are. We we reconnected the wires later. So, um, yeah, a little bit under the weather today. So don't greet me. You don't want to. You don't want to have what I have. I don't even know what I have, but I'm still in the middle of having it. So uh, Amy's home, not doing very well, and uh, um, I'm, I'm going to give you my best shot. How's that? I probably wouldn't even be here except for I think next Sunday is Easter, and we have this little series thing we're doing. So I have to finish this Philippians passage. We're in Philippians chapter two. If you have a Bible, it's page 980. If you're following along with the Bibles in the um, chairs in front of you. And uh, amazing passage of scripture today. Last Sunday, uh, we saw the book of Philippians take a little turn for us as it has really been a letter of greeting and, and personal information. And then in verse 27, Paul pulls out his first command, his first proposition, if you will, and it was this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the first proposition in the book of Philippians, the very first time. He says, here's how you're supposed to live. And I think we could probably take that one command and call it a blanket command for everything that's coming uh, from the rest of the book of Philippians is a description of how to live a worthy life. Uh, uh, of the gospel of christ and so the proposition is this that we gave you last week that we are to live as gospel people there are some difficulties with doing that aren't there it's one thing to tell somebody to do something and then to anticipate all the struggles that come with it there are some external pressures that press on that command in our lives and we saw those last week verse 29 and 30 it has been granted to you for the sake of christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. We've been called to suffer for his sake and gave that message last Sunday. I had no idea Nashville was going to happen on Monday. No idea whatsoever that 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 command would be, uh, you know, front and center in our thinking 24 hours later. It's amazing, right? In fact, what I'd like to do right now, I know Jim prayed for the folks down there I wanted to just stop and ask you to pray you know maybe with the people around you just take a couple of minutes Uh, you're okay with praying for Presbyterians right you guys okay with that Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit but can you imagine the pain that's going on in that church today Covenant Presbyterian there in Nashville I just thought we should lift up our brothers in Christ in our church service today so we're just gonna stop You don't have to listen to me. I'm going to be quiet. Would you just huddle, uh, maybe with your friends, your family, husbands lead, and fathers lead your families. And uh, let's let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ down there. Would you do that, please? I think oftentimes the world misunderstands the concept of thoughts and prayers, right? Um, And they take a very cynical view of that, saying, well, uh, you didn't pray very hard ahead of time or this tragedy wouldn't happen. And the psalmist said that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not outside the valley of the shadow of death. And the prayers are there to support us in the darkest times and so when we send thoughts and prayers you hear that phrase kind of flippantly thrown out there the significance of that is not that when we pray nothing happens you'll notice in the passage god gave the suffering he's the one who gave it but he also gives us his presence in the middle of that suffering to survive it for his namesake so when we pray for the nashville people or ourselves We're not necessarily saying this will never happen here or that because we prayed, we're always going to be safe. What we're saying is we want to hold on to our faith in the midst of those struggles, right? I don't want that pastor whose nine-year-old daughter was shot and killed to crash and burn his faith because of this great tragedy in his family's life. So we pray for him. We pray for them so that they can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because all of us are going to walk through that valley. God, knowing that, sends his spirit to comfort us in those moments. Now, if we are to live as gospel people, back to the book of Philippians, we are going to face the reality of of external pressures. Some of those will aggressively afflict you. I just read about that in verse 1, chapter 29. They will will, uh, 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 cause suffering to come to us some of those will subversively join you. Chapter 3, verse 2, look out for dogs and the evildoers who mutilate the flesh. And so when Paul comes and he says, live as gospel people, we have to understand that's lived out in the framework of a struggle, you guys. It's not just a smooth sailing, let's walk along the beach and hold hands and watch the sunset, and it's going to be awesome and everything. It's going to be in the midst of suffering and and struggle in our lives and so some will come from the outside and they'll grab us some will subversively come from the outside and join us which then leads me to the second point there are internal pressures on us because of the external pressures. so chapter 2 verse 14 do all things without grumbling and disputing or chapter 4 verse 2, where he says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord, you see, so those external pressures can create internal pressures as well, where if we listen to the external voices, our internal voices start to clash with each other. Have we not experienced this in the last two years, just dealing with the virus? you know, when do you open church, when do you not open church? If you opened a church, did you get the vaccine, did you not get the vaccine? The external pressures start to create internal struggles in our lives, and so as he gives this overriding command in chapter 1, verse 27, live as gospel people, uh, it, it is in the midst of struggle that that happens. Now, how are we going to survive the difficulties, if you will, the internal and external pressures, and and survive uh, uh, and accomplish this command. And this is where our passage takes us today. And so the execution of our lives, how we're gonna execute the command to be gospel people is by the high call of being low. I, I thought that was a clever way to say it back when I was thinking clearly. I don't know if I'm thinking clearly now. I got a bunch of medicine in me to prop me up. I kind of feeling kind of happy up here. <laughs> not sure exactly what I'm doing, but it's, it's like, okay. Anyhow, um, so I'm not sure everything's going to fit together all day. Anyhow, that being said, let's stand. We'll read the first four verses. He's going to tell us how to be gospel people in the midst of this great struggle on earth. Are you ready? So, verse one, if there's any encouragement in Christ... And the passage goes on. We'll get more next Sunday on Easter. Let's pray again. Father, we open your word this morning because we, we want to be gospel people. And we do feel the, the strain, the struggle, the pressure against our lives to not be gospel people. And so we come to church today and we long to find direction for our lives. And we bow and pray to you so that you'll help us do that very thing. And so I pray that as we open these words and ponder them, As your word calls us to a high life of lowliness that you'll help us to have the courage to submit our own egos to put our own self-interest not in the first place in our lives for you are a great king and you deserve that place Uh, strengthen us today father so that we can learn how to be gospel people really well for your namesake and Help me to speak well on your behalf, please. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, chapter 2, verse 1, a lot of the Bible scholars think it's unfortunate there was a chapter break here because the, the text starts out in the original with the word therefore. It's translated so in the ESV, but it definitely connects what's there to what just came. So. There, since they're suffering and since you've had this great command on your life, uh, these things ought to be true of you. And a uh, person of the gospel, worthy, living worthy of the gospel and suffering by God, this is how you are to approach that. How do you navigate the command to live a worthy life in this world? It starts out with the word If. There are actually four of those in the original text. The ESV only translates one of them and leaves the other three as understood. So if you were to read it to more uh, um, uh, literally, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any in comfort of love, if there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. So it's an if-then thing. Grammarians call it a first-class conditional clause. I spent five years of Greek so that I could give this two-minute lecture on everything I know about Greek. So it, it, but the idea is this. There are different types of clauses, and there are different type of if clauses. The first class conditional clause is a clause that really points out something that you know to be true. For example, if I said, if the sun comes up tomorrow, I will get out of bed. Can I ask you something? Is the sun coming up? It's coming up, right? So it's not a statement that I'm not sure it's going to come up. It's actually reinforcing what it's saying. So when he comes here and he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, all four of those ifs fill in the then, But all four of those ifs are considered to be, we know it's true that we have encouragement in Christ. We know it's true that there's comfort in love. We know it's true that we have participation in the Spirit. We know it's true that we have the affection of believers. Therefore, or then, we're going to do something. And so as Paul writes this to the Philippians, he's not writing because he's not convinced or that they're not convinced. He's actually confirming what they already believe. The four ifs are interesting, aren't they? Is there any encouragement in Christ, you guys? Based on the suffering of chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, is there any encouragement in Christ in the midst of that suffering? There is, right? Is there any comfort of love in the midst of your suffering? There is. Is there any participation with the Spirit of God in the midst of your struggle? There is. And how about the fourth one? Very interestingly... Is there any um, affection and sympathy in the midst of your suffering? There is. Before I leave these four, let me point something out to you. The first one points to Jesus. The third one points to the Holy Spirit. The fourth one points to uh, the body of Christ. Most folks think that the second one, the comfort of love, points to the Father. Is there any comfort of love of God? The Bible doesn't tell us what kind of love. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I want you to go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 just for a moment. That's page uh, 971 if you're following along. 2 Corinthians uh, 13. Let me point this out. Uh, Verse 14, which is the conclusion of the whole book, where he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the spirit be with you all isn't that interesting as paul closes that letter to the corinthians he highlights the trinitarian god doesn't he you have the you have the love of god you have the grace of the lord jesus the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit those same three things are sitting right here in this passage if there's any encouragement in Christ, is there grace in Christ? Yes. Is there any comfort from God's love? I think there's comfort from God's love. For me to live as Christ and to die as it's the best ever, remember? That, that's a strengthening thing. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? That's the actual word is koinonia in that passage. Do you participate in the things of the Spirit or don't you? Is the ongoing movement of the Spirit a part of your life or not? If it is, then we'll get to the then in just a second. So if I'm reading it correctly, the encouragement in Christ, the comfort of the love of God, and the participation in the Spirit of God would be the Trinity all involved in your life on a daily basis. And if you walk with God and have experienced the love of the triune God in your life, you have to step back and go, that's amazing, which takes you to the fourth one, which then says, I should encourage and comfort and strengthen and bring a help and affliction uh, and sympathy to my fellow brothers. So Paul writes that to them, and he says, you're gonna be gospel people. If these four things are true, then do something. This is the only verb command in this particular passage and it is complete my joy if these four things are true then do this so the basis of being low is now followed by the motive for being low Um, to make my joy complete is interesting it is a very personal thing which we've come to experience in the book of philippians it's a very very personal letter and what's interesting about it is Paul has already said they've brought joy to them. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I'm making my, uh, my prayer with joy. They have participated with him in the gospel. Verse 5 uh, of chapter 1, your partnership with the gospel is with me right now. Chapter 1, uh, verse 7, he says, um, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart because you're partakers of me with grace. They sent Epaphroditus, chapter 2, verse 25, to bring a gift from them, which he then recognizes in chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You you were concerned for me, verse 14 of chapter 4. It was kind of you to share in my troubles. There's a deep connection between this man and the people he's writing to, and he augers down into that connection and says this, Nothing could make my joy more complete than to have you finish the course. Make my joy complete. If there's any comfort in Christ, if there's any love of God, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if you've experienced the sympathy of the the brothers in Christ, make my joy complete by what? Fulfilling what you've started. As much joy as they've brought to them, his joy can grow even more if they'll persevere with him. It reminded me of 3 John verse 4 where John says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy. Nothing meant more to an imprisoned apostle. Nothing could bring greater joy to a guy who's chained up to a Roman guard than to hear the church that he helped start was hanging in there and doing well. We we take great courage from each other, don't we? We get strength when we watch people walk through the valley of the shadow of death and walk through it strongly. We get to the place where we say, your perseverance of faith is changing my life. You are bringing fullness of joy to me. Hmm. So the basis of this humble life, the basis of being able to survive the sufferings of this earth are the four ifs, if there's any encouragement, comfort, participation, and affection that brings a motive to say, I'm going to make the guy who helped me see those four things uh, filled with joy. I'm going to walk a life in such a way to, to show him that his labor was not in vain. He then comes and he explains what a low life looks like. So how are they going to daily be gospel people? So verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. I stop there and I emphasize the word being because that is the thing that is going to uh, bring the full joy to Paul is the beingness of the Philippians. It's not what they know. It's not even what they say. It is who they are. It is a profound thing to consider this, that our spiritual walk is a walk of existence, not just a walk of knowledge. We are to be somebody. We are to stand up and look like somebody. And he says, if you are being who you're supposed to be, this is going to bring joy to my life because you have experienced the encouragement, the comfort, the participation, the affection and sympathy, so you are somebody. Let's never confuse the gaining of knowledge with the existence of character. In the passage, how does he want them to be? He wants them to be same-minded, so he says, I, you are being the same mind, having the same love, in full accord, and of one mind. You'll notice that the mind is uh, 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 represented two times in that verse, sandwiched between same love and same purpose. It is an interesting thing to ponder what he means by same-minded. We'll get to that in just a second. But as I read this, I kind of stopped and stared and thought, It sounds like he's promoting groupthink. We should think about the same things. We should have the same mentalities. How far does groupthink go in the body of Christ? I I, I think this is a difficult thing for us Christians. How much do we have to agree on in order to get along? Should I let that hang out there? That came out pretty well. How much do we have to agree upon for us to get along? How many different Christian denominations are there? Why are there so many? Uh, I'll never forget uh, years ago when we were doing ministry in Russia and and uh, our dear brother, uh, Vladimir Miskovich, came to Fort Wayne. And we'd been there for, I don't know, six, eight, ten years. And he came to visit us. And he preached in our church. And I'm driving him around town. And he kept going, church, 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 church. I go, yeah, that's a Methodist, that's a Lutheran, that's a Church of Christ, that's a... He didn't know what any of that meant. He just saw church. So how much do we need to agree in order to get along? What exactly is Paul saying here? I think this is a struggle for us. I think it's a struggle for us at Headwaters. What are the minimum things we should agree upon in order to be a member of a church? What are the bright-line things you need to believe to be a part of this ministry as a member? We, We take our best shot there, you guys. But if I look at this passage and I think about it, and I think about church membership specifically, um, we have a tendency to make church membership about what positions we hold. But I think in this passage, church membership had more to do, are you ready? With what promises we make. It's not so much about what we believe as it is how we promise to behave toward each other. You see, being of the same mind is defined by having the same love um, and being of uh, in full accord, which is a, an interesting word. It's the only time in the whole New Testament. And it means to have the same soul. And so, if being same minded is the idea of having love and purpose of, in oneness. In other words, same-mindedness is more ethical than it is doctrinal. Or if you, would, if you want me to say it in a fancy way, it, it's more about orthopraxy than orthodoxy. We have a tendency to elevate doctrine, and I love doctrine, and we do it here, so it's not like I'm against it, but the thing that's really going to unite us is not our shared statement of faith, but our shared behavior in life. And I read this passage, and I go, oh, no. Because when he says be of the same mind, when he says think about the same things, he's saying that I should have the same kind of love for you that I have for myself. He's saying that we are, are you ready? This is a term that gets thrown around on dating apps soulmates. We are to be in the body of Christ, soulmates with each other. We are to have the same love for each other. In fact, I I found this quote. I couldn't find who it belonged to, but I put it in quotes so I didn't claim it as my own, although I liked it enough that I would have. It says, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. That's when love begins. So when he says be same-minded two times and he sandwiches that in between same love and soulmates, you get the concept of what it means to be same-minded. It means that your wounds are my wounds and your joys are my joys. You just ate and drank communion with each other. By virtue of participating in that, you connected yourself to every other person in this room who also ate and drank communion. And it also means that you and I should have great compassion for everyone who tipped that cup and ate that awful little chalky piece of whatever that is I was over there and I ate the thing and I'm like dude you got to preach that's stuck in my throat this is not good I don't know if you ever thought about what it's like to preach after communion but those little wafers man the little pieces of them just dangling in there and anyhow sorry to bring that up but you get the idea You understand, then, that what Paul's telling his Philippian friends here is this is who they are supposed to be. And it is a call to absolute humility. It is a call to putting my interests not first. It, 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 it is a swing At my own desire to fulfill my purposes in my time, in my way, I inconvenience myself because you're my soulmate, because we have the same love for one another. That's what it means to be same-minded. years ago when I came how am I doing on time yeah I've been worse um, when I came here in 1987 for you young people that's back when dinosaurs roamed the earth there were no such things as cell phones or internet or anything I mean it was it was it was the Wild West is what it was in our little church we had 30 people and we really were really bad at music I mean it wasn't it wasn't that we were okay no we were it was it was frightening sometimes there it, 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 it got scary and I had been the youth pastor at Blackhawk and I was sharing this story with some friends Friday night and Pete Kobe, who just passed away with the music director and he said, John, what if the people who sang at Blackhawk one Sunday sang on your platform the next Sunday? And I said, giddy up to that idea. That's a great idea. And so I don't know if you've ever noticed the Blackhawk's got some singers over there and musicians. And. And I remember Dave and Debbie Johnson, and Dave was the, was the uh, violist for the Fort Wayne Philharmonic, and he went to church there. Well, it, we had a little bitty sanctuary. It, it would have held, this This is it right here. This center section would have been the whole sanctuary. And it was alive, and they would come in and play. And it was like, oh, the sweetness there. And the, the, the people of the church got mad at me. And they go, you're trying to turn us into Blackhawk. And I said, I would love to be like Blackhawk, are you kidding me? But they didn't know what I knew. Here's what I knew, because I'd been at Blackhawk for a little while. When someone went into the hospital from Blackhawk, the foyer of Parkview Hospital filled up. And that's what I meant by I'd love to be like Blackhawk. Because the care of the person who's having the surgery or was in the accident or had the cancer or whatever, so affected the mindedness of our church that people flocked to the hospital and just sat there for the whole day it was like yeah yeah that would be horrible if our church became like blackhawk and i love my church that i got saved and gave my life to christ at blackhawk when i i didn't even know what i was saying then but i get it now And man, wouldn't it be something at Headwaters if when someone from our hosp- from our uh, church goes in the hospital, we filled the foyer and people go, who are all these people? Did they all come here in a buggy? Aren't they supposed to be Amish and then the Amish fill the hospital? Do you guys get it? When Paul looks at them and says, be of the same mind, that's what he means. When that person goes into surgery, you don't really care if they're an Arminian or a Calvinist, do you? You might have different takes on your prayers. Lord, we know your will is already accomplished, and the surgeon has already decided what to take out, and hopefully he picks the right organ to remove. Uh, but, uh, and then the Arminians are there, Lord, I know the surgeon has free will, and he could do anything he wants. I, I pray that he cuts in the right spot so that the right thing happens. Who cares? Pray, man. Now, verses 3 and 4 unpack what it means to be low. And he's going to bring a couple of comparisons. It's a uh, not this but that type of construction. I don't know if any of you have tried to lose weight. It's a horrible thing trying to lose weight because it's so much more fun to put it on than it is to take it off. It's been my experience. But there's this little website, if you really want to do it, called Eat This, Not That. I don't know if you've run into Eat This, Not That. But my favorite part is it tells me what to order at Wendy's when I go to Wendy's. So yeah, okay. Which donut at Tom's Donuts has fewer calories than the other? Eat this, not that. Now you're talking my language. That's kind of what this passage is. This is better than this. Do this, not that, in verse three and verse four. Are you ready? So there's two not thises. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's verse three. Verse four, let each of you look not on his own interest. So those are the nots. Don't do this. Instead of doing this, do that. But I want you to notice what this do-nothing from selfish ambition. He does not leave us any wiggle room whatsoever for our own agendas. The standard of humility in this passage feels so far out of reach that I'm not even sure why he gave it to us don't worry, it's going to get worse because the example of that humility in verses 5 to 11 is none other than Jesus coming to earth and hanging on the cross. When he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, that's a high standard. Nothing's pretty all-inclusive. He then in verse 4 says, but each one of you, let each one of you look not to... I have nowhere I can hide, and it's for everyone. This is a blanket requirement of humility. The Bible's not going to look at any person in this room and say, you know what, you're excluded from this one. Each one of you should do nothing from selfish ambition. Oh my And we have to grapple with what the Bible is saying to us here. In chapter 2, verse 14, he adds a little layer to it. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. So everyone, every time, must do everything selflessly. I want to go to that church. I don't want to have to follow that rule. But I'd like to live with everybody else who's doing that, right? This is what's going to make the apostles joyful. Is the Philippian people setting their personal agendas aside for their brothers in Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Let each of you not look to his own interests. And do all things without grumbling. There's just nowhere for us to hide you guys. I don't know how to share this with you and make it any more uh, all-inclusive than it is. I think it was meant to be that. Let's pause then and think about it. If I'm going to be a gospel living person, the only way for me to achieve that is to set my personal interests aside. Every time. In all things. Um... To be honest with you, to proclaim that is really hard, because I know the standard that God just set for all of us is unachievable by any of us. When he says in verse 4, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, or excuse me, in verse 3, out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's the exact same word he used in verse 17 of chapter 1 to describe his enemies. They did this out of selfish ambition. I really like sports. Um, Liked playing them. Don't play them anymore because parts of my body don't work very well. My mind still does, and so my whenever you play a sport your mind says to do something your body used to do and then your body laughs at you when you try to accomplish it <laughs> what do you think you're doing <laughs> it's like it's just like what, what are you doing I, I was in a, I played baseball in college and I went to the alumni game a couple of years ago and I would somehow I made it to second base that was a, that was a huge thing by itself but I'm, I'm I'm taking the lead I used to take when I was in college I was a very aggressive base runner really fast and I saw the picture and I said, he's gonna turn around and pick you off. And he did. I never moved. I just stood there and watched the whole thing. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I'm supposed to dive back to the base. And my mind says, you should dive back to the base. My body said, I, I don't think so. I, <laughs> it feels like dirt's gonna be under there if I do that. It's just hilarious how, how your mind and your body work together, but but it, it, in, anyhow, um, when the Indianapolis Colts were great, you guys remember that? That was back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, too. <clears throat> Tony Dungy was the head coach. And on the wall of the Colts' locker room was this statement No excuses, no explanations. Don't you get a sense that's what the Bible's saying to us right here? <laughs> There's no excuse. For being selfish. There are no explanations you can give. The Bible doesn't give you any wiggle room here. This is do nothing out of selfish ambition and let each of you follow that rule. So instead of that, you're supposed to do something else. Now, I wrote myself a little note right here in my notes, and it says this. If you are prone to having a high view of your own opinion or you carry the burden of always being right, this passage is a shot across the bow of your life. That's the exact quote I wrote myself. That was for me. You want to hear that one again? I don't know that it was that special, but if you're prone to having a high view of your own opinion, or you carry the burden, and I, I, I'm not being sarcastic there, I look at people who are always right, and I think I feel sorry for them. They think they're always right. What's the statement? Often wrong, never in doubt. This is a shot across the bow of your life. God has not given you the wiggle room to be the authority on every single thing at every single moment of even your own existence. Do nothing but let everyone do this. So that's the not. Not this, but what's in its place? There are two things. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition uh, and conceit, but... In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, but also the interest of others. Not this, but that. We come to the place then that humility is the earmarking quality of a Christ follower. I can't do anything, but I must watch out for everyone and every time and i must do all things without grumbling every single time and i want to throw my hands up and go that's not even fair don't worry it'll get worse next sunday when your life is compared to jesus's because that's what he did for you and the bible's going to say next week be like jesus and you're going to go How? And I might go back to the four ifs. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of God's love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there is any sympathy of the body of Christ, make my joy complete by being a low, humble person. How are you going to do it? You're going to tap into those four things that define your existence. Now, just a couple of things here. Um, Verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The, The old King James Bible translated, esteem others higher than you. New American Standard, regard others higher than you. ESV, look to them. The problem with esteeming others higher than me would be that I would look at them as they're better than me. This is not part of what he's saying here. It's irrelevant whether you think they're better than you, you make them better than you. Do you understand? You don't look at them and say, well, they're a better person, therefore I'm going to submit myself to them. That's not what you do. Humility doesn't look at other people as better than them. Humility looks at themselves and say it's irrelevant who it is. Their their needs are more significant than mine. Again, this is a very ethical passage, not necessarily a doctrinal passage. This is how we live. We get out of bed in Galatians 6.2. We bear one another's burdens. So whether you think they're more important than you and not, or that they're more significant, or have more education, or more money, or self-sacrifice, it's irrelevant who they are. So it's not this, but it's that. It is self-sacrifice and caring. And that self sacrificing caring is not even a mental attitude. It is a reality of behavior. You value other people when you engage their interests, not yours. Yikes! Very tough text to live, you guys. Now, I've already tipped my hand, but let me just say in conclusion this, that all of this Language points to Jesus. So these things in verses 1-4 through 4 are connected to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Daryl had us look at Isaiah 53 earlier, and we esteemed him smitten and stricken of God. And he esteemed us as too valuable to not die for. And having received the sacrificial death of Christ, and having seen the humility of Jesus to leave glory, we'll talk about it. We're going to spend three weeks on the kenosis passage uh, for those of you who are into theology. But it's not primarily a theology text. It's primarily an ethical text. But it says such amazing things about Christ that we can't believe that the Bible says He emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant and He hung on the cross for us. How did He do all of that? He became obedient even to the point of death. That's what we're called to do in our humility. This is the high call of being low. And it is exampled by Christ and it is to be followed us let's pray thanks father for sending us this amazing passage it will drive us to our knees begging for forgiveness every time we're selfish every time we just think of ourselves which is only when i'm awake lord i'm good at loving me These dear people in this room and I join together in prayer and beg you to make Headwaters a place where the type of humility that's demanded in this passage is routinely experienced in our church family. This will not be easy, Father. There are external pressures on us, there are internal pressures on us. Help us, Lord. Please, amen.